Spring of 1940 was a grim time during World War II. Adolf Hitler's panzer divisions were mopping up French troops and preparing for a siege of Great Britain. The Dutch and Belgians had already surrendered. The British Army was floundering on the coast of France in the channel port of Dunkirk. Gathered there at the shore's edge were nearly a quarter million British soldiers and over 100,000 Allied troops. With German troops only a few miles away, it seemed that capture or death were the only likely outcomes. The Royal Navy had only enough ships to save barely 17,000 men, and the House of Commons was told to brace itself of hard and heavy tidings. While a despairing world watched with fading hope, a bizarre fleet of ships appeared on the horizon of the English Channel. It consisted of trawlers, tugboats, fishing sloops, lifeboats, sailboats, pleasure crafts, and an island ferry named Gracie Fields. Even the America's Cup Challenger Endeavor was part of this unexpected armada. All of these vessels, manned by civilian sailors, sped to the rescue. This ragtag armada eventually rescued 338,682 men and returned them home to the shores of England. All the while, Royal Air Force pilots engaged in aerial combat with the German Luftwaffe in the skies above. To this day, it remains one of the most remarkable naval rescue operations in history. I believe this remarkable account has great application to the church. As those called by God to salvation, as his elect, called from every tribe, tongue, and nation, we also are, in essence, God's ragtag armada. We are a mix of flawed individuals, sinners saved by grace, called and commissioned by God to take the most important message to the world, to the lost people, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And without the help and anointing of the Holy Spirit, this would certainly be an impossible task. Yet we know that Jesus said at the end of Matthew 19:26, with God, all things are possible. Nowhere is this exemplified more clearly than in Joshua 6. As you recall, Israel was told to enter the promised land, and Joshua was their leader. The Israelites would face their first test of faith as they came to the city of Jericho. Confronting the city of Jericho, we see the Israelites staring at a city where no one went in and no one came out. Jericho was a military fortress built to defend the eastern approach to the high country. It could not be bypassed. It was not a big city, but it was a strong military fortress built to defend the eastern approach to the high country. By taking Jericho and I, the Israelites would control the central ridge from which they could hold the high ground to attack both north and south. Jericho was a city fortified by a double ring of walls. The outer wall was six feet, and the inner walls were 12 feet. Timbers were laid across this inner wall so as to support houses. And in addition, Jericho was built on a hill. So the Israelites had to mount a steep incline to reach the city, making this task an even greater challenge to taking the city. So the city was totally locked down. And what was the reason for this? The Canaanites feared the Israelites. The news of Israel's exodus from Egypt and their recent victories east of the Jordan had already spread to Canaan and put the people in a panic. As God had promised, though, in Exodus 23:27, 27, 
He said, I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. So the Canaanites were afraid and were hoping their walls would protect them. But the Israelites also had their concerns. The place was shut up tight. How would they ever hope to take Jericho? I can only imagine what was going through their minds, seeing this huge fortress before them without even a battering ram, siege ramps, scaling ladders, bows, arrows, or spears to fight with. From a, hum- excuse me, from a human standpoint, nothing could have looked more hopeless. How could they ever take this city? Certainly, they couldn't intimidate the Canaanites. Yet, while the Israelites at the moment saw no clear plan, God already had a plan. Remember back in Joshua 5:13a, Joshua saw Christophany. Scripture records Joshua saw a man standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. Joshua asked the man if he was for or against them, and the reply was, No, rather I indeed come now as the captain of the host of the Lord. At that moment, Joshua fell and worshipped. As we come back to Joshua 6, we read in verse 2 that the Lord told Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and valiant warriors. God assured Joshua that the city would be taken. It was a done deal. The victory was won. Although God could have spoken a word and Jericho could have been destroyed, we will see that the real battle with Jericho was not with the Canaanites, but with the Israelites. Not with the wall, but with human hearts. In verses 3 through 5, Joshua is literally given his marching orders. God required that Joshua and the people trust the promise of God and obey the Lord. The long-awaited promise was soon to be fulfilled. The destruction and taking of the city of Jericho was the first city that the Israelites took, setting a dramatic tone for all the other cities that they would take. And just as the crossing of the Jordan was treated as an important event with proper ritual preparation, so also the taking of Jericho was to be done properly and in order. So God gave precise instructions for the taking of the city, which involved careful ceremonial circling of the city rather than the classic military tactics. So the Lord told Joshua, You shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat." And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. To the Israelites, these must have sounded like strange marching orders, to say the least. It reminds us that God's ways are truly higher than our ways. But let's not miss the purpose behind God's instructions. First, God's instructions to Joshua contain no military strategy at all. God is mandating a ritual ceremony. So let's track the progression here. God gives the assurance to Joshua in verse 2. Then he instructs Israel for its part in the siege, verses 3 through 5a. And then God gives the amazing results in verse 5b. There's no military strategy here. 
just the blowing of trumpets, the prominence of the priests, the Ark of the Covenant, solemn processionals, and the prominence of the number seven, which occurs four times in verse four and 14 times in the whole chapter. Seven is the number of totality, completion, and perfection in scripture. This emphasizes the completeness of God's victory on Israel's behalf. Thus, all of God's marching orders are essentially ceremonial because it is God who has won the victory. All was in God's hands. The ram's horns called the people to worship, not to war, and the ark in the middle of all this activity indicated God's very presence with them. In verses 6 through 14, we see Joshua conveying God's orders to the Israelites. Only a few new details are added here concerning God's instructions. The priests carrying the ram's horns were to blow the horns as they marched. And also Joshua commanded the people not to shout, not even to let a word proceed out of their mouths until they were commanded to do so. That must have been really hard to do, (laughs) silently walking around and around wanting to say something. I can only imagine. So for six days they awoke early in the morning and did exactly as the Lord had commanded. And for six days absolutely nothing happened. And what was the purpose of all this? Clearly to test Israel's faith. I'm sure this also brought some strange responses from both the Canaanites and the Israelites. There may have been ridicule by the Canaanites as they watched the circling in silence. It seemed the Israelites maybe were humiliating themselves day after day of endless walking and then going home. Maybe the Canaanites thought that they were chickening out or didn't have the courage to attack, or maybe it even brought more fear, wondering, why aren't they attacking? From the Israelites' perspective, there was probably no shortage of apprehension as well. Questions like, well, what is Joshua doing this for? What is he waiting for? How we, uh, maybe they'll come over the wall and attack us. What good is this doing? They had to march by faith, blow trumpets by faith, take each day by faith, and eventually shout a victory cry of faith. So this brings us to the seventh day. Things began as they had on the previous six days. It's interesting to note, though, that Jericho encompassed approximately eight to nine acres, so it probably only took the Israelites like 30 minutes to circle the city. So here again was this ragtag processional, the priests carrying the trumpets of ram's horn. But these were not ordinary trumpets. They were jubilee trumpets used in connection with Israel's feast to proclaim the presence of God. Then, of course, the ark, representing the Lord going before them. Perhaps by now, as the Canaanites saw this, it was business as usual. Here they go again, same old, same old, going around the city. Um, Can we ignore them? But this day would be different. In verse 15, we're told that unlike the other days, this day the Israelites marched around the city seven times. Then suddenly, as they marched around the city the seventh time, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. That's verse 16b. Donald Campbell adds some realistic commentary when he states, 
and what a shout what and what a shout that was as the Israelites gave release to their repressed emotions and stifled voices. It was a shout that reverberated through the hills around, startling the wild creatures in their dens and terrorizing the dwellers of Jericho in their homes. At that moment when the air was rent, the wall of Jericho, obeying the summons of God, toppled into ruin. And so it was, as the Israelites shouted, God toppled the wall. This teaches us, us much about trusting the Lord and about the importance of not leaning on our own understanding. Because when we trust God and not ourselves, we demonstrate faith. As Hebrews eleven six testifies, and without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Think of the faith of the Israelites. High walls do not fall to the noise of a shout or trampling feet. Cities are not won by the blowing of trumpets. Yet this is precisely how Jericho was won. As Christians, we are people who know the promises of God who are commanded to believe the promises of God. And as we do, the word of God generates faith in our hearts as we trust in God's promises and obey what God tells us to do. Ladies, can you think of an instance when God was telling you to do something that you couldn't imagine? In my 47 years of marriage, the Lord has asked Jack and I to step out in faith many times from selling a thriving business in Illinois to moving to Florida, to Jack going to Bible college with three kids, a full-time job, and schooling, and then leaving our beloved lakeside to serve in several churches. Many times along the way, we wondered, how are we going to do this, Lord? Yet by God's grace, he gave us the faith, trust, and obedience we needed to be faithful to his call. There were so many twists and turns in God's plan for us. There were so many times when things seemed to go just the opposite of what we thought or what made sense to us. I can imagine the Israelites. God's plan for the conquest of Jericho was seemingly foolish, but it worked. God's wisdom is far above ours, and he delights in using people and plans that seem foolish to the world. Our neighbors in Illinois were all too quick to tell us how foolish we were in selling a thriving business to move to Florida for a sound church. We had no idea how we were going to make it financially or otherwise. Yet remember Matthew 19.26 assures us that with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Not only did we make it, but God blessed us exceedingly abundantly beyond what we could ask or think. Ladies, never underestimate the power of faith. Hebrews 11.1 tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So often, more times than not, we have no idea what God is doing or why he allows things or how we are to move forward. But as we cling to his word and wait upon his Holy Spirit to inform us, We will gain God's approval, and he will provide something better for us than we could ever gain on our own. The Apostle John reminds us of the importance of faith by saying, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory 
that has overcome the world, our faith. 1 John 5, 4. As we come back to the text, we see that Joshua gave a sober warning to the people about two things. First, that nothing shall be taken as spoils of war. And second, that Rahab and her household alone would not be killed. Verses 18 to 19 state, But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest, when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. After the walls of Jericho fell down, the city was burned and all living things were killed. The Israelites were instructed to destroy the accursed things, but take the silver, gold, vessels of bronze and iron and give it to the Lord's treasury. God told Israel to wipe out the unrepentant Canaanites here in Jericho and elsewhere in the promised land because Israel needed to be pure and separate from their pagan religion. The corrupt influence of Canaanite religion with its prostitution and infant sacrifice would make pure faith and worship to Yahweh very difficult. Also in Deuteronomy 20, 16 to 18, Scripture says, However, in the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave anything alive, anything that breathes. Completely destroy. Excuse me, completely destroy them, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, all the ites, <laughs> as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. So on the seventh day, the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they utterly destroyed everything in the city, men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua gave the second order. He said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father, mother, and brothers and all who belonged to her as they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. So Joshua honored the promise of safety to the household of Rahab because she and her family had trusted God. Trusting the spies, Rahab stayed in her house and was instructed to put a a scarlet cord in the window, which she did. In doing so, she was promised no one within her house would be harmed. Rahab experienced God's mercy, became a part of God's chosen, chosen nation, and became a part of the lineage of Christ. What a beautiful picture of what God does for us as well. When we come to faith in him, he saves us from the judgment all around us, plucks us from the crashing walls, and places us into his chosen family. After taking Rahab her relatives and all their belongings outside the camp, they burned the city and all that was in it with fire, only the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, 
her father's household and all that she had because of her faith in hiding the spies, Joshua sent to spy in Jericho. So not only was Jericho utterly destroyed, but the wicked city would be an object lesson of God's great victory by putting a curse on it. This would warn any of the Jews or Rahab's, Rahab's descendants who might be tempted to build, rebuild what God had destroyed. In verse 26 we read, Then Joshua charged them at that time, saying, Curse be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with the loss of its firstborn, and with the loss of his youngest he shall set up its gates. This prophecy was fulfilled in the days of ungodly King Ahab, as we are told in 1 Kings 16.34. The destruction of Jericho was the beginning of the fulfillment of God's word to Moses long ago. And in verse 27, God kept his pledge that he would be with Joshua, thus spreading Joshua's fame throughout the country. Ladies, to the Canaanites, God's people must have certainly looked like a ragtag armada. Yet God would use them as chosen vessels to show his power and might in bringing about his will. In similar fashion, we are that ragtag armada, God's remnant today that he uses to accomplish his work in spreading the gospel. God delights in using weakness and seeming foolishness to defeat his enemies and to glorify his name. Our faith and confidence is in the fact that we serve the same God that delivered Jericho into the hands of the Israelites. Nothing is impossible with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your strength when we are weak. We thank you for your wisdom when we are foolish. We thank you for your faith when we are faithless. We thank you for using us with our faults and our inadequacies to glorify your name. May we be found faithful in all that we say and do. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.